Welcome to the Burn Bag Podcast. My name is Ryan Rosenthal. Not being joined by Andre Ganuela today. This is a solo intro uh, for this week's episode. Uh, Andre and I uh, have been talking quite a bit about the 2022 Beijing Olympics, uh, and we thought it'd be important to re-up one of our former episodes. We uh, were fortunate enough to have Professor Sean Roberts uh, on the podcast back in November uh, of 2020, where we talked about the Uyghurs, the Uyghur minority group uh, in China. Now, I mean, the, the Olympics were kind of undergoing a lot of kind of diplomatic and social media buzz because of the United States' decision, as well as many other Western countries, to have a diplomatic boycott. So to not send uh, a delegation of senior officials to the Olympics because of, among other things, uh, this cultural genocide of the, the Uyghur people. And our episode with Professor Roberts discusses the Uyghurs in great depth, and it's based upon his previous work, including his uh, most recent book, The War on the Uyghurs, China's Internal Campaign Against a Muslim Minority. Uh, it's a, a wonderful book that kind of delves into this, and we'll, we'll discuss it in this episode. Um, but because of, one, China's holding of the Olympics, um, and their kind of opening ceremony in which a, a Uyghur athlete, uh, who was relatively unknown, uh, was a part of the Olympic torch uh, ceremony uh, at the beginning. And so this was kind of, you know, seen as by, by Western media as got basically a political statement uh, against those who were boycotting or maybe have been scrutinizing uh, China for its treatment of, of the Uyghur people and its actions in, in Xinjiang province. Um, but of course, Chinese media spun it as, you know, kind of a uh, ethnic cohesion that the, the Uyghur people are treated respectfully. And that, of course, as, as we talk about with uh, Professor Roberts, is clearly, you know, far from the truth. And so, uh, again, this episode is meant to kind of bring to light um, a very important conversation that we had. Um, and of course, continue the conversation about the plight of the Uyghur people, um, really understanding what they've gone through, how other countries have played a role. And in some respect, the global war on terror, which uh, of course was kind of catalyzed by the the nine eleven events uh, in the United States, um, and so uh, I hope you all very much enjoy this episode if you have not already heard it, um, and if you have already heard the episode, again I would uh, recommend you check out uh, Professor Roberts' book. All right, uh, we'll leave it there to our conversation with Professor Sean Roberts. Professor Roberts. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for inviting me. Certainly. And uh, Professor Roberts, let's just start off this conversation by giving some context for our audience and for ourselves. Uh, so let's orient ourselves and lay out some of this background around this big issue. Uh, so, Professor, who are the Uyghurs? Uh, where is their homeland? And how long have they lived in this region? So uh, the Uyghur people are a Turkic people. Um, their language is um, related to Turkish from the Turkish family. It's mutually intelligible with Uzbek. And in fact, um, Uyghurs share more culturally with the peoples of former Soviet Central Asia uh, than they do with the Chinese. Uh, and historically, there's been a lot of back and forth between uh, the area that became Soviet Central Asia and uh, the Uyghur homeland. And, and you could basically view them as uh, one cultural region. Um, 
They, uh, the Uyghur nation, in terms of the modern nation, really um, came about at the beginning of the 20th century uh, when it became defined as um, a Uyghur nation. But uh, if you go back in time, you know, there was certainly uh, an identity, a collective identity of the people in this region. Uh, that goes back into uh, 18th, 19th century, if not earlier. Um, and, you know, I, I basically make an argument um, that you can view the Uyghurs as the indigenous peoples of these of this region. Um, and, you know, that that's important because um, the the popular idea of indigenous people is that they're the first people on a territory. But uh, it's been recognized that really, um, when we're looking at the modern concept of indigenous peoples, it's those people who were in a region prior to uh, colonization in the modern period. And um, the Uyghurs certainly were um, the dominant uh, ethnic group in this region in the mid uh, 18th century when the Qing dynasty first kind of um, conquered this region. And by the 19th century, it really became more of a colonization of this region. Thank you for that, that brief overview. And so the, the Chinese Communist Party, um, after you know they were established after the Civil War, they vacillated between accommodation and repression uh, in the earlier years. And so what, what drove these shifts and how did the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991 impact China's approach to the Uyghurs? Well, yeah, that there's some interesting questions uh, embedded there. Uh, you know, first of all, I think um, one of the things that happened when the Chinese Communist Party took over is that they uh, took a lot of cues from the Soviet Union in terms of their uh, approach to ethnic minorities or nationalities. And uh, the Soviet system, you know, really... it. First, the Soviet system recognized that the Russian Empire had colonized parts um, of what became the Soviet Union, uh, and it it had a certain accommodationist approach to uh, allowing ethnic groups to develop their identity, um, national consciousness, uh, a certain amount of um, autonomy in the sense that you had different Soviet republics uh, that at least in the Soviet constitution, were allowed to secede, um, though in reality they probably you know, could never have been able to secede during the existence of the Soviet Union. But um, China really, the Chinese Communist Party really began straying from that sort of policy uh, early on in its rule. I would say by the late 50s, as they'd there was a, a developing Sino-Soviet split. Um, the Chinese government uh, kind of strayed more from uh, this kind of Soviet accommodationist position of trying to include nationalities in their on their own cultural terms, if not their own political terms. And so, while uh, the region um, that's the Uyghur's homeland that uh, became the Xinjiang Uyghur autonomous region within China. It has uh, autonomy uh, per the constitution of China, but it's it's noteworthy that um, included in that autonomy 
is no right to secede. So there's always been this sense, uh, this kind of, I, I would say, tension between uh, wanting to create a multicultural socialist society and um, at the same time, uh, an inability to recognize that these regions weren't always part of China, that there had been um, a colonization in the past, that there had been excesses of um, imperialism in China's history. So um, there's, there's, I, I note in my book, there's a couple different periods of accommodation. The first one being in uh, right after the revolution in the 1940s, where they uh, the Chinese government essentially uh, engaged a lot of the Uyghur elite as members in the Communist Party and as kind of the governing elite of the region. Um, but that started to um, go the other direction already by 1957 when um, the Chinese government employed a kind of anti-nationalist uh, purging as part of the um, anti-rightist campaign. Um, and then, you know, you have a period of the Cultural Revolution that follows soon after that, which is very chaotic. And then after um, the Cultural Revolution in the 1980s, there's another period of accommodation uh, but as I note in my book, um, what seems to happen with these brief uh, times of accommodation is that uh, the state essentially starts moving backwards uh, after uh, a short period of experimentation and begins controlling, um, if, you know, kind of a centralized control of the region and of its people. Um, so really, I think the story of what um, is happening now begins mostly in the 1990s um, as China is trying to, for its, yeah, I think the first time, really integrate this region into uh, the state and, and society and its people. And that's partly because in the 1990s, uh, while the, the specter of the fall of the Soviet Union uh, begins to worry uh, the Chinese government, um, particularly with regards to different ethnic groups and national groups. Uh, it also presents an important opportunity in terms of economic growth, because um, as Deng Xiaoping starts uh, it starts implementing economic reforms, the Soviet Union is an important market, and that market borders on the Uyghur region. So that makes the Uyghur region more strategically important beginning in the 1990s. So now digging a bit more into your book, uh, as Ryan had mentioned in introduction, of course, the crux of your argument is that the global war on terror started in 2001 after 9-11 is directly related to the Chinese government's repression on the Uyghurs. Uh, could you elaborate on this argument? So essentially, has the war on terror enabled the CCP, the Communist Party, to use, quote unquote, terrorism as a justification for its goals. Yeah, I, that, I think that's very much the case. Um, you know, during the 1990s, the Chinese government, um, because of the fears of uh, the dissolution of the, the Soviet Union uh, repeating itself in China, uh, it, the government began cracking down very much on expressions of nationalism. 
uh, broadly defined, you know, both among Uyghurs and Tibetans and even Mongolians. Um, but uh, at the same time, there was an, an attempt to incentivize assimilation. And, um, you know, you could say that uh, up to 2000, that approach could have been successful over the long term, you know, kind of cracking down on any expressions of uh, a desire for self-determination, while at the same time providing Uyghurs and and other ethnic minority groups uh, the the ability to integrate with Chinese society, you know, go to Chinese universities. Uh, There was a lot of affirmative action plans um, and various attempts to integrate Uyghurs uh, more or less voluntarily through incentives. Um, the war on terror kind of changes that, um, that calculus because, uh, I think, you know, right, right, uh, throughout the 1990s, the Chinese government targets any expressions of self-determination. And, and that, and again, I, I mean that very broadly in the sense of, you know, um, publications that promote the idea of, uh, Uyghur, um, cultural national pride, um, any kind of uh, investigation of past historical moments of glory of the Uyghur people and so on. Um, And they target that in the 1990s as separatism, which is, um, is, is a very politically motivated term. And uh, I think it's also one that's not really, um, recognized by the international community as a threat. Um, you know, I mean, there's, there's, uh, I think in the international community, there's a sense that self self-determination is something that, um, nations should be able to, um, to assert, even if that doesn't mean sovereignty, you know, it means, you know, recognition of their, um, unique position in, in a territory, their history, their culture, and so on. Um, and almost immediately after 9-11, the Chinese government uh, began a, a campaign to essentially rebrand what it had termed Uyghur separatism as a Uyghur terrorist threat. And it first did this through a series of policy papers that outlined almost all of the Uyghur uh, political organizations, uh, human rights defenders, and so on throughout the world, and claimed that they had a shadowy terrorist organization that was linked to Al-Qaeda and um, the Taliban. Uh, And of course, you know, right after the 9-11 attacks, that was a very serious accusation but initially, you know, the first year after the Chinese government uh, kind of began this campaign, the international community didn't really pay much attention to it. Um, you know, they were familiar with a lot of these uh, human rights defending organizations in the West. Um, they knew that there was very little likelihood that they had any connection to international terrorist networks. They were mostly secular in their, um, in their positions and so on. Um, but suddenly in August of 2002, the U S kind of, uh, took a, a sudden turn in its policy and it recognized one, uh, 
to that up to that time unknown Uyghur organization in Afghanistan uh, called the Eastern Turkestan Islamic Movement as a terrorist organization and as having ties with Al Qaeda uh, and the Taliban. And that really, you know, just that small recognition of a small group essentially validated this idea that that China faced a Uyghur terrorist threat. Um, And, you know, a lot of my book follows that period from 2002 to the present and the kind of uh, impact that had in many different ways that led us to the present moment. Right. And I think something your book does very well is Uh, conceptualize what terrorism is because your definition is different than others. There are many definitions out there. uh, And so your definition, of course, informs your analysis. So, so Professor, how do you conceptualize terrorism and terrorist groups? Uh, I think it's important just because it's so central uh, to how you lay out your argument. Yeah. uh, So, you know, one of the things that really surprised me when I started researching this issue because I, you know, I, I don't have a background as a terrorism expert, but it really surprised me that there is no uh, universally accepted definition of uh, terrorism. And um, what's even more surprising is that in a lot of books that um, look at terrorism, they kind of uh, acknowledge that there's no definition and don't necessarily um, establish a definition uh, when they're talking about the term, kind of suggesting that, well, terrorism is something you you know it when you see it, you know, which is, of course, I think a, a very slippery slope and is one of the problems with the global war on terror is that leaving the definition so wide open has allowed a lot of different governments around the world to attack domestic opposition in the name of counterterrorism. And it's difficult to push back on that if there's no definition. So um, one of the the definition that I adopt, I I, um, I get it uh, in part from um, an Israeli expert in in terrorism who makes uh, the case after uh, 9/11 in 2002. He he wrote an article where he outlines the importance of establishing a definition, particularly as we're entering this global um, uh, war against terrorism. And he he notes that um, that definition should be holding non-state actors to the same um, standards that state actors are held in conflict. Um, and uh, it, his name is Boaz Gar- Garnor, and um, he makes the point that we should define terrorism, particularly by the act, not by the ideology or the associations of groups, and that the act that is most central is political violence, premeditated political violence that targets civilians. Um, you know, in, in international law, states are, um, are held accountable if they target civilians in a conflict, and it seems um, it seems reasonable and uh, appropriate that non-state actors should be held to the same accounts. Um, But of course, you know, the history of conflict has shown that non-state actors um, engaging in conflict itself is not, um, is, is something that is not universally condemned. It's, it's been 
uh, something that has uh, given us the world we have today through revolutions and through uh, anti-colonial struggles of um, of national uh, independence. So I think that um, it's important to to hold non-state actors to that same account, and that really the most important issue is looking at whether um, a non-state actor is engaging in predetermined, uh, you know, premeditated political violence targeting civilians. Perfect. Thank you uh, for kind of laying that out. I think our audience will have a better understanding. I'm kind of going into this and and figuring out, you know, why um, the situation has become what it is. But I want to go back to something that you mentioned. So in in August 2002, the U.S., um, you know, having this policy that the East, Eastern Turkestan Islamic Movement is a a terrorist organization. Uh, And, you know, in in 2003, the U.S., um, invaded Iraq, right? There's the United Nations uh, effort. Uh, is, there, is there any relation between the U.S. policy and getting, China's, um, getting China to basically bless the, in, the invasion of Iraq? Yeah. I mean, I think that um, m- most people who are looking at this decision at the time, well, they, they didn't know yet that we were about to invade Iraq, but um, you know, Colin Powell, for example, in his memoirs, notes that um, the U.S. government was already in the summer of 2002 uh, laying out the plans for invading Iraq. So it, there was certainly already that was uh, a major foreign policy goal of the U.S. at that time. And one of their biggest hurdles was at the U.N. Um, you know, people would broadly said that uh, recognizing this group was an attempt to get China on board in the global war on terror. Um, but really where that was most important was um, the pending invasion of Iraq. And in particular, you know, with China as a prominent member of the uh, UN Security Council, making sure that um, there were no uh, there were no there was no opposition within the Security Council for that invasion of Iraq. So, you know, I think even though we there's no smoking gun for this, um, and we may not know until the archives are declassified, but um, I think that, you know, there's a a very strong case to be made that the reason the U.S. government recognized this group was to uh, ensure China's acquiescence um, for the invasion of Iraq that would happen the following year. So I guess if we look at this from the Uyghur point of view, uh, is there violence a tactic that's widely viewed, I guess, as appropriate to further their goals of self-governance? Uh, is there a sharp divide within the Uyghur people as to like legitimate means? Or is there even like a common goal at the end of this? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, often when you talk about uh, nations that uh, don't have statehood and sovereignty, um, it's very difficult to determine um, what is their common goal because they don't have any form of governance that would allow them to actually negotiate that um, and have representation. So certainly, I think it, it, you know it's fair to say that um, the Uyghur people as a whole, you know, they might have very a variety of perspectives. Um, in fact, in the 1990s, I mentioned you know there were incentives to assimilate and you had um you know significant parts of the 
I, I, I shouldn't say significant, but you had parts of the Uyghur population who were taking advantage of that and assimilating. Um, what, what, uh, what was really neglected by the Chinese government was um, the majority Uyghur population in the south of the Uyghur region, which um, was not really given many opportunities like that. Um, but, you know, even there you would have, I, I believe, a variety of perspectives on um, the importance of Uyghur statehood. And I, I think what's most important is that during the 1990s, and I would, I would argue to this day, there, there's not been um, an actual organized militant group within China um, of Uyghurs that were uh, trying to use violence as a means of um, establishing sovereignty. Um, the the one group that the U.S. recognized, uh, ETIM, uh, I, I in my book I, I did a lot of research for my book that um, looking into the origins of this group, and there is one one person who um, has this vision of going to Afghanistan to try to uh, establish an army um, to uh, liberate the Uyghur homeland. Um, but in in fact, um, this is a complete failure. He gets no support from the Uyghur diaspora. He gets no support from um, the Taliban or um, Al-Qaeda. In fact, um, the Chinese um, Ministry of Foreign Affairs enters into uh, a whole number of negotiations with the Taliban in 1999-2000. And as a result, the Taliban makes sure this group um, is unable to do anything. So um, this group, uh, you know, there's no evidence that this group actually ever carried out any acts of violence, um, you know, politically motivated or otherwise. And um, what's interesting is in the original documents, the Chinese government was promoting um, uh, this idea of a Uyghur terrorist threat. They outlined during the 1990s, 400 um terrorist attacks that led to 162, I'm sorry, 200 um, terrorist attacks that led to 162 deaths and over 440 injuries. Um, and this is, this is a long list of violent incidents, mostly spontaneous um, clashes between uh, the police and Uyghur civilians. Um, a couple things that may have been um, attempts at political violence. Uh, there was one bus bombing in, in the list. Um, but um, this group actually, uh, which was only established in 1998, didn't have anything to do with any of that. But the, when the U.S. government recognized it as a terrorist organization, it claimed that ETIM had been responsible for all of this violence and that it had all been terrorism. Um, and, and that, um, you know, that actually, uh, <laughs> meant that the U S government recognized this group as more of a threat than the Chinese government had even done so in the, in their own documentations. Yeah. I think what, what's so interesting about all of this is this false characterization, um, of these, of these groups, or maybe these, you know, one-off attacks, uh, as a broader terrorist network, 
seeking to attack the Chinese state. And Professor, you say that 2014 marked the turning point in the CCP's repression of the Uyghurs uh, because, you know, we talked about these violent attacks on Chinese security forces um, and they increased leading up to 2014. But is there any uh, event or maybe any breaking point that you could um, uh, look to? Sure. Um, and, and let me give just a brief uh, kind of preface to this, because I think some people who, who might be listening to this, you know, when they, they hear that ETIM um, and this person I mentioned, Hassan Masoom, who, whose vision it was to create an army in Afghanistan of Uyghurs, he is killed by the Pakistan military in 2003. And as far as I'm concerned, his vision dies with him. But another group emerges in 2008, uh, which claims uh, kind of the legacy of his vision. And um, this group is a very small group uh, in Waziristan and does seem to be associated with Al-Qaeda, and it's called the Turkestan Islamic Party. Uh, they become extremely, extremely prolific video makers. Um, but they, looking at their videos, you know, I can only identify, you know, up to 2013, 14, um, maybe a half dozen people. Um, and mostly, uh, they make videos that threaten China, uh, while probably being foreign fighters, um, you know, in Waziristan with different, uh, groups there, Al Qaeda and the Pakistan Taliban and so on. Um, but that I, I mentioned that because that kind of feeds into what happens in 2014. Um, first of all, um, in 2009, there's there's a significant disturbance in Urumqi that has nothing to do with terrorism. It's it's uh, ethnic riots that break out between Uyghurs and Han, um, and it, it's it's basically um, you know unbridled kind of uh, frustration about um, the development that the Chinese government's undertaking in the region that's bringing in a lot of Han in-migrants. So some of those Han in-migrants also become violent against the Uyghurs. The Uyghurs become violent against them. And it all develops after a peaceful protest is suppressed by security forces. Um, but Following that, the Chinese government really begins to crack down on Uyghurs. It blames Uyghurs for all of that violence. And particularly in the south of the Uyghur region, it begins uh, tracking um, any, any signs of religiosity among, among Uyghurs. And, um, uh, you know, some of the people uh, I interviewed who, who lived in the south of the region at this time talked about being under virtually under house arrest. You had um, police doing uh, frequent unannounced house checks on people uh, to see if, you know, they were reading the Quran, if they were um, engaged in any kind of nefarious um, behavior. And this was all kinds of kind of contextualized as a counterterrorism um, strategy where they were trying to uh, seek out the these kind of phantom terrorist groups within the the population where where the, you know by all accounts they didn't exist but that puts so much pressure on um the local population that you started to see an increase already in 2010 of these violent clashes between police or security forces and Uyghur uh citizens 
you know, they don't look at all like premeditated um, political violence, but the Chinese government characterizes them all as terrorist attacks. Furthermore, this group in Waziristan that's making videos continually applauds any of these acts of violence and characterizes them as acts of jihad. Um, even though you know they they never claim credit for the acts because um, there's no there's no evidence that they have uh, the, that they have any role in organizing them and, and they're mostly spontaneous. But this kind of starts this cycle of um, repression, um, resistant you know violent resistance, repression, and um, by 2013-14 we start to see a few acts of violence uh, that look, they do look, I mean, I would characterize them as terrorism. So um, one is uh, a stabbing in, um, a mass stabbing in the Kunming train station. Um, and there's a bombing at the Urumqi uh, train station. Uh, and all of these appear to be, um, you know, more or less premeditated political uh, acts of political violence, and they do target civilians. Um, but from my um, research into the each of these events, there's no evidence that there was any kind of organization behind them. Um, they're more likely kind of um, lone wolf attacks in response to what had been just this growing, growing repression in the region. Um, but that, but that just further fuels this kind of counterterrorism narrative um, to the point where, in 2014, the Chinese government um, and and now under Xi Jinping starts this people's war on terror. That um, one uh, basically looks at uh, the idea of extremist ideas as being a crime. Um, and and it very broadly defines its idea of Islamic extremism to encompass much of Uyghur cultural expressions that may be founded in Islam, uh, you know, including dress, including um, what you name your child, including um, whether uh, you accept a hand in marriage from uh, somebody of another ethnic group or religion. All of these things become essentially criminalized. Um, and at the same time, we start to see uh, kind of the early stages of uh, testing out the tactics that um, have been in place since uh, 2017. So we see kind of beta testing of uh, this idea of re-education, um, which you know, the, the Chinese might also call de-extremification. So how you, um, you, you reform Uyghur's consciousness to make sure that they're not um, extremists, which is essentially equated with you, you need to um, completely eliminate uh, their social capital, their, um, uh, their faith, uh, and kind of their collective identity and culture. Um, and you also see the beginnings of um, the establishment of this massive electronic surveillance system, which includes, I think most ominously, this, this database where um, if you identify any Uyghur, 
um, you know, at a checkpoint or something, you can look up uh, everything from where they were in the last 24 hours, um, what their communications had been on, uh, on, you know, the telephones or, or via um, internet, um, you know, uh, records from their employment, any uh, records of whether they went to mosque even over the last several years. So all of these, all of these um, policies put in place during the People's War on Terror in 2014 kind of set the scene for what happens uh, in 2017 and, and, and which is con- continuing to happen now. So, I mean, you noted a couple of like really interesting and well, terrible things. I mean, one, the mass surveillance system, which is just, I mean, immensely scary to think that, I mean, they have that much of a detailed uh, placement of where these folks are. And then also you had mentioned the quote unquote re-education. And uh, we're going to touch on that in a little bit in a section on cultural genocide, as you term it. But uh, just before that, something that I guess, often seems to go unnoticed in the public conversation is this mass uh, exodus of Uyghurs uh, from their homeland, from their ancestral homeland. Uh, So what does this exodus look like on the ground itself? Uh, Has the Chinese government attempted at all to stop the Uyghurs from fleeing these territories? Yeah, so uh, a lot of that is is still kind of shrouded in mystery. so uh, beginning, you know, after the 2009 riots, as I mentioned, there was increased scrutiny of Uyghurs um, throughout their homeland, and particularly in the south, which is the Uyghur majority populated area. And, um, uh, you know, starting shortly after that, you know, probably initially in 2010, but really gaining a lot of um momentum by 2012, uh, there starts to be um, kind of an underground railroad uh, facilitated by Han Chinese human traffickers to allow Uyghurs to get out of China. Um, And the the route they take is through Southeast Asia. Um, You know, I've been studying Uyghurs for quite some time, and in, in, in most intensively in the 1990s. In the 1990s, Uyghurs would always flee China, going to Central Asia, and then perhaps finding refuge further on from there. Um, but uh, starting in, in 2010, and as I mentioned, gaining a momentum to, in 2012, there started to be a significant number who were being taken through South, Southeast Asia. And I've interviewed some of the people who took this route, and by all accounts, it was it was, you know, terrifying, uh, extremely difficult. It would involve you know first getting to uh, the Chinese border with Laos or Cambodia, and then um, further on going from safe house to safe house in Southeast Asia. Um, you know, many ended up in Thailand. Others ended up in Indonesia, in Malaysia, um, and uh, most of them, their their uh, goal was to eventually get to Turkey, where um, they knew that the Turkish government would generally give them refuge. Um, and historically, that's been the case because of uh, kind of the Turkic connection 
uh, between Uyghurs and Turkey. And um, this really, uh, I think the first time this really came into relief was there was a significant number, uh, several hundred Uyghurs found in a human trafficking uh, camp in Thailand. Um, and there was a, a, a kind of showdown between Turkey and China over this because the Uyghurs in the camp said they were Turkish. And um, the Chinese government said, no, those are Chinese citizens. And the Thai government, um, you know, not wanting to uh, create a problem with either China or Turkey, ended up sending uh, most of the men back to China, where they eventually disappeared and, you know, were either imprisoned or perhaps even executed. And um, most of the women and children to Turkey. But but there, this this movement of people was was fairly significant. There's no you know there's no official data on it because those who um, succeeded in getting to Turkey um, are are not um, officially recognized as refugees, and they're usually given temporary uh, residency permits. And so um, you know talking to people in Turkey, they estimate that about ten thousand people came that way during this period. Um, the The Chinese government does kind of shut this down uh, about 2015. Um, and there's no evidence that people, that Uyghurs are able to get out through uh, Southeast Asia after that. Um, but uh, in the meantime, for about a year, the Chinese government mysteriously gives out passports uh, to um, Uyghurs. And, um, you know, some of this was Uyghurs before that had been required to have their passports stored either at the local police station or an official tourism agency um, to ensure that the government knew if they were taking them out to travel anywhere. Um, so they suddenly gave all those passports back and they encouraged other Uyghurs to get new passports. Um, and as a result, there's a, another mass exodus legally using passports. And, um, you know, it seems that perhaps as many as 30,000 Uyghurs um, uh, either illegally through human trafficking or legally with passports left for Turkey between 2012 and 2016. Well, Professor, I'm glad that you included that in your book because it's it's certainly important and uh, goes to this broader plight of of the Uyghur people. Uh, and so we're we're approaching in our timeline 2017, uh, which you call the era uh, in which cultural genocide uh, began. And so, uh, kind of for our audience, what is cultural genocide, and why is it applicable to the Uyghur people? So. Uh... The, the term cultural genocide is usually associated with the kinds of genocide um, that we've seen indigenous people suffer from settler colonialism. So, you know, um, in the United States, Native Americans, um, in Australia, Aboriginals, um, in Latin America, various indigenous people. As as settlers come in, you know, settler colonialism has kind of been characterized as differing from other forms of colonialism because other forms of colonialism generally need to exploit both the people and the land. 
But settler colonialism is, the aim is usually to settle this with new people, um, with the colonizing population. And therefore, um, the indigenous population is kind of superfluous. And um, as a result, you have to remove them. But it's, it, I think it's important to note that this is, it, it certainly, you know, um, qualifies as a form of genocide by the UN Convention on genocide, but um, it's not really the same kind of genocide you saw during the Holocaust, because the aim is not necessarily to physically exterminate the entirety of this population, but it's it it does aim to depopulate the population, displace them, break down their um, their ties both to the land and to each other, and break down their social capital and their identity, so that they're become essentially marginalized within society. And it, and it really appears to me that since 2017, the acts that the Chinese government are taking against Uyghurs uh, really amounts to that. And that, that also makes sense in terms of uh, kind of the goals uh, of integrating this region and making it an important um, economic hub for external relations of China through the Belt and Road Initiative. So we've seen a lot of the uh, public outcry in recent years uh, being in response to the actual internment and incarceration of the Uyghurs. So what actually drove the CCP to pursue this, I guess, extreme? And how uniform has it been through the Xinjiang province? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that that's, you know, it's a difficult uh, question to answer. I think there's uh, kind of a perfect storm of things happening. Um, you know, China, as I mentioned, during the 1990s was trying a more gradual approach to assimilating Uyghurs through incentivized um, programs uh, to assimilate and, and at the same time cracking down on any kind of um, dissent. But um, I think, you know, one of the things that changes, obviously, is uh, Xi Jinping um, when he comes to power, I think he he has a much more um, immediate desire to see things happen. Um, And also, um, you know, given that the Belt and Road Initiative is his signature foreign policy uh, project, um, making sure that um, things become normalized for the state in this region uh, sooner than later so they can begin building Um, the infrastructure for that. But another aspect of it is also there's evidence that under Xi Jinping, the Chinese government is taking a much um, less tolerant position towards difference of all kinds, you know, certainly uh, political differences, uh, you know, the um, political liberalism has been scaled back, but also ethnic and religious difference. And so, um, you know, we're starting to see some of the things uh, that have happened to Uyghurs, uh, the government is um, implementing with less, um, I guess, aggression, but are implementing some of these things in Tibet and in Mongolia. And with regards to um, other Muslims, the Hui Muslims uh, in Gansu and other areas around China. So so I think that, you know, um, 
this kind of turn against um, difference, you know, a kind of a, a drive for a more monocultural China is part of it. I think the strategic importance of this region is part of it. Um, and kind of, uh, I think Xi Jinping's um, party, uh, it's, it's belief that it can essentially um, forcibly make things happen. Um, and, uh, all of that kind of adds up to a decision to, you know, not, not go for a long-term gradual assimilation of Uyghurs, but just forcibly assimilate them, marginalize them, take them out of their, uh, off their land, um, and essentially, um, erase their legacy there. I just want to, I mean, note one of, and will highlight one of the more gut-wrenching aspects of this cultural genocide. Because, I mean, when we're talking about these issues, oftentimes we get sort of immersed in the weeds of geopolitics and, you know, all of these overarching things. But I wanted to really take this next question to highlight the actual human costs of this, I guess, as you said, this intolerance for difference. So given your fieldwork and interviews, what has been the actual human impact on those who have been in these re-education and forced labor camps uh, what has been the impact on the families whose loved ones are forced into this fundamentally repressive system? Yeah, I mean, I think um, we have more accounts um, of people uh, whose family members have been interned. There are some accounts of people who were interned, um, but the you know it's it's interesting. Is some of the justification for the these internment camps, which the Chinese government initially said did not exist at all. Um, but after that, they claimed that these were just vocational training centers. Um, but the accounts of people who were in uh, these camps suggest that they're very prison-like. Um, they're completely controlled. People are um, uh, not allowed to um, communicate uh, with the outside world very much. Um, some of them it, it, it is important to note that also that there 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 is difference between camps, which I think is something that you see uh, whenever you have this kind of mass internment. Um, a lot may depend on the local um, the local people running the camps, how how um, how kind of vicious they are. Um, but there's also been a lot of reports of torture um, if people don't follow the rules. Um, there's been reports of um, sexual violence, um, you know, which I don't think is is something that's a state policy, but it's something that is inevitably going to happen when you have um, internment of the size and, you know, penal institutions where you have such a significant portion of the population in them uh, and and with people you have to uh, bring in to control these people. Um, so I mean it it it's 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 every bit you know as um you know gut wrenching as um any kind of mass atrocities you've you've heard about in other other contexts historically um we do we do also see a lot of this impacting people um particularly the Uyghur diaspora which is which is really mobilized around this, um, you know, all over the world, because almost every Uyghur who is outside the country 
um, has relatives who are who have been subjected to these camps or to imprisonment. Um, and I think, uh, you know, what's important to note is uh, I think the the internment camps and perhaps the the mass surveillance are the most headline grabbing aspects of this. Um, but what's really important to understand is those two uh, institutions essentially um, ensure that uh, any Uyghur who's not interned um, uh, complies with any other policies the state is bringing in. So the, the, the government's also promoting uh, inter-ethnic marriage. Um, and since, you know, turning down marriage from somebody of a different ethnic group is a sign of extremism and therefore criminalized and subjected to imprisonment or internment, um, that's essentially coerced inter-ethnic marriage. Um, we have these uh, coerced labor programs, which is taking, which are taking Uyghurs out of um, their their native villages and putting them in residential uh, factories, where they also are subjected to uh, re-education. Um, and the re-education itself is a combination of Chinese language and um, uh, Communist Party um, ideology. Um, and it also includes things like um, uh, self-criticism, um, and particularly as it relates to uh, anything one may have done in the past that reflected being religious. Um, you know, so it's, it, 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 the actual internment, I think, is, is a significant psychological torture for anyone who has to go through it. But even for those outside of the penal institutions, it's it's constant psychological torture because you're always wondering whether you might end up um, being taken away or somebody you love might be taken away. Um, so it's 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 a very grave situation indeed, uh, without a doubt. Uh, and you know it, it should be universally condemned, but you know that's, it's not really what we're seeing, right? We we have many Western countries that have come out against this cultural genocide. Uh, but I, I guess almost surprisingly, many Muslim majority countries are, are largely silent. And so I'm, I'm curious, Professor, why do you think that is? Well, I think it, it's a combination of things. Um, you know, uh, one thing is um, I think that the, the, the U.S. Um, has very strained relations with the Muslim world as a result of the global war on terror. And um, I, I think that. Um, uh, it's it's very easy for, for these Muslim countries to to buy uh, into China's justification that this is a double standard if the U.S. is criticizing the U.S. and the EU, which were both involved in all kinds of human rights abuses during the global war on terror. I, I the other the other component, which is very important, of course, is that. Uh, China has increased significantly its uh, soft power around the world through economic investment, and um, this is particularly true in in the Muslim world. Um, and then finally, I think you know the fact that um, there's very few democracies in um, in the Muslim world means that it's easier for uh, state leaders to um, do uh, what is 
in the interest of their country um, in terms of real politic and economic gains rather than take a stance on some some sort of idealist um, position. Um, but I think that where you do see uh, some of that breaking down are places like Turkey, Indonesia, and even to a certain extent, Malaysia, because in those countries, um, you know, there, there is, uh, there are democratic processes. So um, as um, the population learns about the things that the Chinese government's doing to Uyghurs and to Islam in the country, um, that's putting more pressure on these governments to act. Yeah. And I think it's very like interesting. I mean, like we have double standards quite a bit, of course, in geopolitics, but it's just interesting with the recent events in France and then sort of the silence we're seeing with regards to the Uyghur uh, situation. But I mean, double standards abound all the time in geopolitics. But just one last question uh, before we wrap up. Uh, what can the international community do to resolve this, to uh, you know, stop this from happening? Uh, should the United States be playing a leading role in this? Uh, can they play a leading role in this? What's your take? So, uh, you know, the U.S. has been trying to take a leading role. I and mean, one thing I should note for the listeners is uh, several weeks ago, the U.S. Um, delisted the Eastern Turkestan Islamic Movement <laughs> as a terrorist organization. Um, the Trump administration has been trying to um, push this issue around the world. <clears throat> but <clears throat> I do think that um, the U.S. is not well positioned to lead on this issue. <clears throat> both because of the U.S. involvement um, and essentially the U.S. Um, origins of the global war on terror, um, but also um, because uh, the U.S. is, I think that U.S. Um, positions on human rights have really uh, faltered over you know the last several years, particularly under the Trump administration. And so... Um, I think I think my hope is to see under a Biden administration uh, kind of a return to uh, the Obama strategy in foreign policy, which is this idea of leading from behind and building coalitions. Because I do think this issue is something that it, it should be removed from geopolitics. And and you know the other thing is right now uh, when you when people look at this issue and they look at the U.S. leading, they say, well, this is just the Trump administration trying to beat up China. And they really just want a, a trade um, uh, deal with China. Uh, and that that's really counterproductive. So I think that this, this really should not be perceived as a geopolitical issue. It should be perceived as a humanitarian issue, um, one of uh, the importance of protecting human rights. and um, in that in that sense, there's really a need for a global coalition, and I'm hoping that um, you know if the if the U.S. steps a bit out of the the spotlight on this issue, that we'll see other countries um, really take you know taking stances and joining to put pressure on on China. We, we're already seeing in Europe, in Canada, um, various actions. The Canadian um, Parliament. Uh, just um, passed a resolution saying that that this this should be considered a genocide. 
Um, they're considering uh, sanctions on people involved in it, which the U.S. has done as well. The U.K. is doing similar things. Germany as well. Japan is even considering um, sanctions. But uh, I do think the real key will be also um, getting support from um, the Muslim world um, and, and from other developing countries. Uh, and that's a that's a tougher thing to do right now, given China's prominence economically around the world. Um, but the the last point I'd like to make is that, particularly as this has become intertwined with um, coercive labor programs uh, that Uyghurs are are subjected to, it's it's in, infected um, so many supply lines in global capitalism. So um, really taking a position of consumer advocacy and uh, making sure that um, products being sold in your country um, are not infected with, with this coercive labor uh, from the Uyghur population, which, which could really amount um, in the end to uh, boycotts on massive amounts of Chinese products. And we know how important Chinese products are to the global economy. So um, I think th- I think that seeing more of that kind of consumer advocacy could really turn um, turn the position of Beijing uh, and make it rethink um, what it's doing. And on that critical point, uh, Professor Roberts, thank you very much for this deep and engaging conversation. Uh, we easily could have gone for another hour. But uh, I really encourage our listeners to, to buy his book, The War on the Uyghurs. Uh, it, it's great that uh, you will learn much more uh, about the situation, about the people um, than what we talked about today. And also uh, follow Professor Roberts on Twitter, at uh, Roberts Report. Uh, thanks again, Professor. We really appreciate it. Thank you. And that was our episode with Professor Sean Roberts. Uh, so I don't have Andre here to kind of go back and forth about our thoughts about, uh, about this episode. but. Um, I'll kind of hit on a few points. First and foremost, uh, I think the professor did a fantastic job of kind of laying out really who the Uyghur people are and their interactions with China as it kind of developed uh, as a, a state into what we see today as the modern People's Republic of China. Um, but I think also, crucially, we talked about really how the um, how China came to view the Uyghur people as a threat, how that their you know religion, they're, they're of course Muslims, but also kind of how their the, the cultural differences and maybe some of the the efforts uh, for um, self governance have kind of led the Chinese state to really clamp down hard, um, and of course viewing them in the light of the global war on terror, um, how that you know has kind of colored this experience as well and provided some sort of legitimacy or at the very least justification uh, for this cultural genocide. Um, and you know in the and since we've had this episode, of course this was November 2020. Um, there have been a lot of developments as far as as kind of the, the Uyghur genocide. Uh, the global community has kind of come out uh, against uh, the, these actions by China. Of course, there hasn't you know really been many consequences for China. There have been political consequences, um, but there are campaigns around the world uh, led by many activists that are seeking to divest um, from businesses that do work or or engage in in manufacturing or operations in Xinjiang province or that engage in labor, forced labor um, by the Uyghur people. 
Uh, and we've also seen activism by um, some American athletes, uh, including Ennis Cantor Freedom, the, the NBA basketball player, uh, who has been quite outspoken on this issue and many other issues as well. I think interestingly enough, for those who may follow the NBA or, or know of the issue, some other athletes and you know very star athletes have criticized those who speak out against the, the Uyghur genocide, be saying that you know they don't understand the domestic situation in China or that they're not speaking from, you know, any sort of level of knowledge and that what the, you know, the, the Chinese government is doing is for them to do. And that really, you know, to, to, at least to me, and I know Andre and I have talked about this on episodes of What in the World, that is just astounding to us that in some instances, um, those American athletes who engage in activism, you know, domestically may then not maybe, maybe turn a blind eye to what occurs internationally. Uh, nonetheless, it's a, it's an important issue. It's an important conversation. And I, look forward to more people kind of learning about uh, the, the Uyghur genocide and hopefully that the international community uh, can continue to, to mount pressure on China to one, really end, we, we, again, we see this cultural genocide, which is essentially stripping um, the Uyghur people of their culture, their heritage, uh, the ability to, for them to practice their religion, to kind of wear what they, what they choose to wear. Uh, and, and in addition, they, a lot of them have been detained and in essentially prison camps. There's also forced labor. They're being removed from their homes. Uh, they're undergoing very strict security measures and surveillance. And so any sort of easing of this uh, is a step in the right direction. So the more pressure we put on China, uh, the better. And so uh, we'll leave it there for this week's episode uh, of the Burn Bag Podcast. Uh, thank you all very much for listening. We appreciate it. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast and follow us on social media at Burn Bag Pod. We'll see you next time.